Let's get political, Yeah, he took away a big mark to the face with that with that yarn. Oh, sorry. Boys, sort yourselves out. Get your mics ready. All right, it's time for political chat. That means I'm joined by Sarah Martin, John Moore, and Dr. Phil Ferguson. Morena to you all. Morena, Jamie. Morena. Morena. All right, it's a big day, big day um, up at the Capitol right now. Uh, in a big week, the government is unveiling uh, plans to close public sector gender pay gaps, forcing the public sector to... Uh, pay all female servants the same as the male kind counterparts by 2020. How is this sort of thing? Why to why not today? Started off today, and Sarah, how is this still a goddamn thing? How is this still a goddamn thing? Two words: patriarchy and capitalism. Jamie, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the twin evils. Um, exactly. Um. Yeah, look, this has come about largely because of uh, union action and union pressure on the government and the state sector, the ECC state services commissioner, to address um, gender pay inequality and discrimination against women in the workplace and the public sector. Um, the PSA, which is the public sector union, made an equal pay claim against the state services commissioner a few years ago, from which has arisen a whole lot of work around identifying where there is gender-based discrimination and how to address it. So uh, this is a big leap forward. It's you know, great that the government has committed to closing the gender pay gap in a pretty short period of time because, as you say, this shouldn't be happening. It's actually illegal against the law to pay people a different rate on the basis of their gender or their um, ethnicity or sexuality. So, you know, it actually, um, it's illegal and it shouldn't be happening. Um, and it's up to all you know, unions and workers to be vigilant about ensuring that. Um, mm. So this is a really big step forward. Um, I think what's kind of been lost in the news over the last 24 years is uh, 24 hours is um, actually the more radical aspect of, of the equal pay to, um, argument, which is around women in female-dominated occupations, which are the lowest-paid occupations. Um, and getting them, getting the value of their work recognised free from gender discrimination is actually the most radical and transformative part of the whole EA argument. I mean, I think you know, people generally accept the argument that two people doing the same job should be paid the same. But um, we've got a way to go before we, you know, I think people in general accept that that um, women in roles such as admin, which have, you know, are really underpaid, really lowly paid, yes. are lowly paid because of their gender and because that's where female occupation, that's where female employment has, has clustered. So that's the really transformative and radical part that has been lost a bit in the last 24 hours. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm off now to continue negotiations for equal pay for social workers, which is a very heavily dominated um female-dominated workforce that has been terribly underpaid since, since you know, for decades. Yeah. And that's where you'll see the nurses, their pay equity um, claim will be is, is on that basis. Teacher aid is the same. So that is actually where the most work and the most um, 
my scope to really transform the way that women are paid mm. life. Mm. And it's not like these, these jobs aren't high-skilled and um, highly educated positions either, um, especially in terms of social workers and nurses and really important roles where you need really great people in the jobs. Um, so you need um, to pay an, a fair pay just to keep really great staff. And I, so I, I don't understand. All these people go through all this training for so long, yet they're undervalued for um, a, a male counterpart that's done the same amount of training and same amount of things to get into similar positions. Yeah, well, you know, it's historical, isn't it? We've um, we've undervalued the caring profession. Mm. You know, we don't we, as a society and an economy, we haven't been prepared to pay the same amount of money to people who do caring as as do number crunching or data analysis or um, the design of um, bridges and and roads. We've said that those caring occupations, which are largely dominated by women, not entirely, but largely are not as important in any way they kind of, I mean, you know, it arose from this idea that women did it as a bit of a hobby, you know, yeah. um, bringing a little bit of extra cash for the new washing machine or the new dishwasher. But, um, you know, that's not the case. These are jobs that um, hold our societies and our communities together and are, you know, critical for the, the healthy functioning of our communities. So, um we need to, as a society, shift to recognising their real value and paying them appropriate. Sorry, I'm a bit out of breath. <laughs> puffing and puffing up the hill. That's all right, you're off to a meeting. It's important. Um, all right, John, what, what are your thoughts on, on what's going on? Okay, yeah, I think it's a positive move that uh, I believe the government has been forced to address this issue in a real concrete way. And I think, yeah, as Sarah said, unions like the PSA and other unions have played a, a very important role in bringing this issue to the fore. Um, my argument, though, would be that the government isn't going anywhere near far enough. That a starting point should be that any pay discrimination is unacceptable. The government's yeah. only saying it's targeting the public sector and it's not bringing any new legislation. Uh, so the government's argument and the argument for some unions is that current legislation is adequate. So we've got the Equal uh, Pay Act from 1972, we've got the Human Rights Act from 1993, Employment Relations Act, State Sector Act uh, and a whole lot of other acts that do uh, um, technically make uh, pay discrimination on the basis of gender illegal. However, that legislation is clearly not working or not enforced or not enforced and the problem is is that it's on the onus of uh, employees uh, and their representatives such as unions to bring up the issue on a case-by-case -case basis and even the Human Rights Commission has said that's unacceptable the Human Rights Commission has said there needs to be concrete legislation that puts the onus on employers on the bosses to yeah. to uh, uh, to see if there's pay discrimination in their business or if it's a public sector and a, and a um, um, say a, a stake-owned asset, etc., or any area of the public sector. That's the onus on managers and bosses to sh to demonstrate that there is pay equity. If there isn't, then they can be held accountable and arguably even um, prosecuted. Mm. Uh, Labor's not talking about anything. Uh, approaching that, that that need to actually force employers uh, and bosses and managers in the public sector to to uh, legally bring about um, uh, pay equity. And again, um, yes, there's all, there's all this legislation, but it hasn't worked. Clearly, there's a need again, as the Human Rights Commission said, is to put the onus on employers. Well, isn't the employer the government for the most part? So, you know, yeah, it is. But um, under the State Sector Act. 
um, the chief executive make those employment decisions. The yeah. government doesn't. The ministers don't get involved in operational matters like that. I mean, John's not entirely correct. The unions do want legislative change. Um, there is existing legislation, but something, yeah, there is, um, for instance, we're calling for um, pay transparency legislation, which could be, which is an important part of that because a lot of people, you know, we still have a lot of privacy and secrecy around how much we're all getting paid, which means it's much more difficult um, mm. to identify where there are inequities. So I don't think it's entirely true that the unions don't think there is need for some legislation. But as are the unions following the um, Human Rights Commission recommendation that the owners must be on employers and that employers will be seen to be breaking the law uh, if, if they don't um, make sure Absolutely, there's pay Absolutely, but equity. unions also want to um, have as a heart of that that um, these things be addressed through collective bargaining. Yeah, well, we saw what happened in the UK, uh, especially with the BBC, uh, when the government forced their hand um, to reveal the uh, the pay <laughs> of, of the top servants within the within positions, uh, and it was outrageous um, the gap uh, at the BBC. Um, but I'm wondering, um, Sarah, why aren't we seeing class suit actions? Like, why aren't we seeing the um, unions and workers? The um, claim that we took the SEC was essentially a class action on yeah. behalf of. Um, you know, all our, our female members in the public service. That was arguably a, a type of class action. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, why aren't we seeing more and more? Why aren't we seeing well, all well, public Well, I, th I think you are, though. I think all equal pay claims, like teacher aides, nurses, um, care and support workers, they, you know, you have a couple of people who, lay, who, who put in the claim under their name who say, I'm being discriminated on the basis of my gender. Yeah. And essentially what happens from that is they represent the whole workforce in that occupation. Yeah. So, for yeah. instance, in the care and support, um, gentleman Christine Bartlett was the individual who put in the claim, but she brought with her all her, um, you know, all her co-workers in the care and support yeah. profession. What's interesting, why didn't the government jump? Like, they saw that um, the care and support sector, they, they won their, their battle. Um, so why couldn't they just preempt everything else and see that you know there's probably going to be more suits down the line? Why don't we just put things into action right now? Well, I think they could. I mean, you know, teacher aides is a classic one. You know, teacher aides are terribly employed. Actually, yeah. they have no security of work. They have very low pay. Um, they go from term to term, basically, with insecure hours and insecure pay. And actually, as you know, as the funder of education if not their direct employer, because boards of trustees are, the government could just say tomorrow, no way, you know? Yeah. Teacher aides are essential parts of our education. They're essential part of ensuring all kids get, you know, the whole, all the arguments. And they could say, we're going to regulate, we're going to legislate tomorrow that all teacher aides get regular hours, they get access to professional development, and they're, they're, the value of their work is recognised through decent pay. It could happen overnight. It yeah. is, I agree, it's ridiculous that we're having to fight these protracted battles to prove gender pay discrimination, yeah. prove gender discrimination when actually the government could move tomorrow in the state sector and pay all women workers what they're worth. I mean, it would cost billions of dollars. This is, you know, so it would cost billions of dollars. It's not going to happen so unless there's there huge there pressure put on the government. There would have to be a willingness to tax people more or um, take money, you know, spend money differently. Yeah, the reason it's not happening overnight is because it is huge amounts of money.
and because the, the government's uh, sticking to strict budgetary responsibility That's rules, right. and yeah. it, as Grant Robertson used it as an excuse to not meet the nurses' demands, uh, again, that will be used as an excuse to not all, meet all demands to end um, yeah. uh, uh, pay inequality, pay inequity. Right. So huge pressure needs to be put on the government. Kind of Rather than praising the government, there needs to be uh, uh, very serious criticisms made of the government that it's really, it's big on talk, but it's not big on action, mm. and it's leaving the majority of workers who work in the private sector, uh, it, it's not addressing um, gender inequality in the private sector. Hmm. I think it's extraordinary too when you think that before 1960 there were actually separate pay scales for women in the public sector. And so if you're a man, job. yeah, for the same job, they're on di different pay scales with the, the ideological justification being that women were only working until they got married and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that was done away with in 1960 mm. so that there was supposedly, you know, equal pay. And 58 years later, <laughs> we still have this gap in the public sector. So 58 years since separate pay scales were done away with, um, it's what 46 years since the Equal Pay Act, you know, and we'd like to think that New Zealand is in the forefront of you know progressive um, legislation and so on. Um, it's also interesting that like this month is the 50th anniversary of the equal pay strike by women workers at the Ford um, car plant in Dagenham <coughs> on the outskirts of London, and those women were their job was they sewed the car seat covers. Mm -hmm. And the claim of the company was that that wasn't skilled work, whereas the work done by men on an assembly line, yeah, just <laughs> like you know, that that was that was skilled work. But the sewing of the car seats, without which the cars couldn't be completed and leave the factory, you know, and those women took industrial action and they they didn't get complete equal pay, but they achieved significant pay rises, and that led to the Equal Pay Act in Britain. And I think that's you know that's the way to go, that unions need to really take up the the fight for equal pay. And we that, are, Phil. I'm yeah, just yeah, about yeah, to I'm, enter a room to negotiate yeah, equal pay for social workers. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I know, I, I, I know you, I know, I know you are. It's not a criticism of, of you know, unions. Uh, well, unions are. This but, is a key activity for unions. Yeah, but a lot of unions, a lot of unions haven't been doing that for a long time, and that's part of the reason why we've had this huge, you know, this historical lag. That there should have been equal pay. Well, there should have been equal pay from the beginning of, of paid yeah, employment. Yeah. But you know, it's it's decades and decades since the nineteen sixty legislation and the nineteen seventy two legislation. And historically, um, you, yeah, unions have been very very slow. And because I'm not simply attacking the unions, because over it, because another problem is low levels of unionisation. Yeah. It's rel you know it's a lot easier in the public sector to fight for these things because the public sector is much more unionised. In the private sector, what's union density? Eight nine percent. You know, so we're the yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so what we need is a much stronger unions, and b we need a fight for better pay for workers as a whole and within that context a fight for for absolutely equal pay so there's like three different struggles here that are that are really essential
Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. This should have happened in 1972, or, or mm. you know, right from the beginning. But um, I think you're absolutely right that we need, um, the unions are taking that fight at the moment, um, and we do need people joining unions because mm. it is the, you know, it is the way to get it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why I've always been a union man. Uh, even where, even at the freezing works, where my union rep wasn't the best. Uh, you know, well, the union boss of uh, Tago Southland was actually uh, very, very much a company man, uh, and that was quite a struggle. <laughs> but you know, I stuck in there, uh, hoping for change, and we eventually got it. Um, you know, can 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 the government force the um, the private sector to do the same, Sarah? Like, I mean, if we get a good outcome here um, with the public sector, um, can the government force the private sector's hands? Uh, that's a, that's a, uh, that would take quite a radical uh, change in approach. I mean, some people are arguing that the government's fair pay um, agreement could be a mechanism, you know, similar to an equal pay settlement. So, for instance, the care and support settlement established that there was a fair pay rate for all people in that industry. Mm. Um, so everyone in that industry is now required to pay that as a minimum. So in some ways, the fair pay agreements that are you know, currently being debated by a tripartite working group could become the mechanism for doing that. But, um, you know, I think we've got a long way to go before we... Um, uh, yeah. Seems like we've had a long it. way to go for 50 years, and we, we haven't got no, very I just, far I down just the road. Can't see a government, co- you know. I mean, and there's a problem with that tripartite approach in that you you are uh, behind closed doors, you're having meetings, and I'm talking about the unions in general here, having meetings with the government and with uh, employer representatives, and you all have to come to a, a common agreement rather than an approach that. Um, Okay, under current law, uh, a whole lot of employers, companies, and the government itself is breaking the law and allowing there to be uh, um, um, inequity uh, in pay rates between women and men. Uh, and again, I think the unions uh, should push for overriding legislation that makes it more clear that uh, there are severe penalties for uh, both the government and the private sector uh, not addressing those concerns. So it's on again, it's on the onus of the employers and the government to find where there's uh, pay inequity and to fix that right away or they can be prosecuted mm. well they're openly breaking the law like mm. uh, uh, flouting mm. it in your face it's, it's amazing it's mm. amazing how the government is getting away with this um, well so you're off to fight the good fight this morning um, Sarah so I, um, good luck to you with that um, we'll have to move on to our second topic now okay um, I don't know if you're going to go now or, or what the go is but um, oh yep she's <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know if that was, she was shitty about that or not. I can tell. Um, but we do. We have to. We have to move on to um, the electoral uh, amendment bill. Um, what is this bill? What 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 is this? Uh, what does this bill plan to do? And to me, it sounds extremely 
undemocratic, uh, undemocratic. And you're not the only one saying that, Jamie. Yeah, uh, um, yeah so this uh, Electoral in, uh, Integrity <coughs> Amendment Bill, colloquially known as the uh, Waka Jumping Bill, uh, will force list MPs out of Parliament if they quit or they expel from their party, and uh, will even um, uh, force um, electoral MPs, so MPs who have been voted in mm. uh, by uh, the electorate, not on the list, will force them, or will force a by-election as well. Um, so the, the, the arguments for this legislation say, well, if you've joined a party, say Labour, National, the Greens, they've helped you get into Parliament and then you are either expelled by that party or you leave that party, well, shouldn't you be kicked out of Parliament? Well, haven't you helped them get into government or get in there as well in their position? Exactly, and it's very dangerous. And it's not just uh, this legislation wouldn't just cover MPs who, are, from my understanding, who uh, voluntarily leave the party, but MPs who are expelled. So let's say um, 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 uh, an MP, uh, let's say a political party was to break its promises. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, a particular MP or group of MPs said, "Hey, we're not go- we're not going to um, abide by that. We're 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 going to um, uh, we're not going to break our promises." Uh, that, and then they were expelled from the party for not abiding by the the collective or the whip in the party. Then they could be expelled from Parliament. So what this legislation, arguably what this legislation does, is it stops dissent within political parties. Yeah. Yeah. It, it gives huge power to the party bosses, to the party tops, uh, because there's always that threat: if you don't abide by the party tops, you're expelled from the party. Then you're out of Parliament. Um, in, in, in the fi- sorry, just quickly, in the fine words of uh, Alanis Morissette, isn't this ironic, uh, especially coming from New Zealand first? Well, okay. I can understand why Peters is so keen on this legislation, because remember, in 1996, New Zealand first did really well. I think they got about 13% of the vote, and they had 17 MPs. Well, they got all the Māori seats as well. Like, including all the Māori seats. They went into coalition with a Jim Bolger-led national party, mm. Bolger gets overthrown by Jenny Shipley, who's one of the reasons that Winston Peters left the National Party and set up New Zealand first, because her and Ruth Richardson were on the hard ro- economic hard right end of the National Party. She was the Minister of Social Welfare at the time of the benefit cuts. Mm. Richardson, her buddy Richardson, was the Minister of Finance. So Peters set up New Zealand first to fight what he calls neoliberalism. Then he finds that he's in coalition with Jenny Shipley as as (laughs) Prime Minister. He falls out with Jenny Shipley and a whole bunch of his MPs side with Jenny Shipley. Now, those MPs were, there was the type five, Mm. so they had been Mm. elected for, they'd won the Maori seats and it was all of them, Tohinare and Tuku Morgan and um, the rest of them. Um, but they had been... Al- so he all of a sudden finds that a whole bunch of his MPs are siding with the Tories against New Zealand first. And so I can understand his upset at that and that his argument is, well, whose democratic rights are we talking about here? Are we talking about the democratic rights of this or that individual MP who m- makes a decision based on 
their salaries and perks as cabinet ministers mm. and MPs? Or are we talking about the tens of th- the democratic rights of the tens of thousands of voters exactly. who voted for New Zealand first? So that's the, that's the counter argument, and I don't think that counter argument is entirely without merit. Mm-hmm. The situation that John was talking about is what happened with um, Jim Anderton, where you know Labor got in promising to do one thing and did the complete opposite. Yeah. And Anderton stood by old Labor, you know, and you know, well, he left. Well, he's standing by his constituents. Right? So he was, and he was standing by his constituents. But with Peters, did exactly the same when he broke from the National Party and was kicked out of the National Party caucus because he felt that uh, yeah. the Bolger League government uh, yes. w- were breaking its promises. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so if your constituents ask you to stand up against the go- like against a certain thing, like we we didn't vote for that, we want you to vote against it, uh, yeah. and you do that, and they and you do that time and time again, and vote with and the way the people that got you in and the reason yeah. you're there. Yes, and, and and both Anderton and Peters got re-elected. Yeah, for for those for those seats. But didn't didn't Peters have a by-election? Yes, yes he yeah, did. yeah, yeah. So Anderton that, didn't, so, no, Anderton Anderton didn't. But that was just a year before I mean, mm. the election. The general election was the next year. Peters went to a by-election. Yeah, totally. so he's quite yeah. So he's quite consistent, and I think he's got an he's got an argument about whose democratic rights is given primacy now I agree with a chunk of what John said about you know if a party gets in and, and then they break their promises and somebody stands by them um, and they expel the person should that person therefore be expelled from parliament and I don't think they should but I also don't think that the individual rights of somebody to make a political decision based on their material gains, which is what happened in the New Zealand First case mm. with um, Tohinerae and Tuku Morgan and the rest of them, I don't see why people who are elected as as the candidates of a party, like in that case New Zealand First, should be able to negate the democratic rights of tens of thousands of voters. But you can't so differentiate I'm between those two t- scenarios with legislation. Mm-hmm. You can't say if, if yeah. you break with your party on material grounds for your own material benefits, you uh-huh. can be expelled from Parliament. But if you do it on honourable grounds, on principle grounds, then you can stay in Parliament. It's, it's subjective whether yeah. I mean, those New Zealand First MPs who uh, stayed in the government argued, well, um, New Zealand First had an agreement with National it's Winston Peters mm. who's uh, suddenly uh, ripped that agreement up between the um, what was now the Shipley government mm. and New Zealand First, and they they were they were acting on their principles. They staying well, in that the, government, but he, but he was probably doing what the majority of people who had voted for New Zealand First wanted. Yeah, wanted well, what comes first, the coalition? Or the, well, yeah. well, what comes first, the coalition or the constituents? Mm. What, what, which is more important, the people that get you there? Yes, and I would say they're they're more important. I don't. I just. I don't think there's. An, I'm. I'm. I'm sitting on the fence on this one because mm. I can see the merits in both arguments, but I don't think when I see you know like twenty academics banging on about the rights of individuals. Oh, leftists! They're all bloody leftists. <laughs> but but they're not. They're, they're, they're not. They're. they're uh, uh, to me, it reeked of elitism. It, it reeked of elitism. It's middle class people saying the rights of these other middle class people, who are, which is what MPs are, um, on $130,000 a year plus perks, and some of them in cabinet on a hell of a lot more, that their uh, rights I'm are more the lowest of the low. <laughs> are, are, are more important than the rights of 
tens of thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands mm. of people who voted for that that party so i don't think it's i don't think it's quite as easy as this is democracy and this isn't because i think i don't like winston peters and i would never vote for him but i think he has a his arg- argument can't be dismissed as simply being undemocratic mm. and oh. that's that's his argument he says like democracy for tens of thousands or democracy for this or that individual right we've got to go we have to leave it there uh, more we'll find out what happens sorry john we're <laughs> that's okay good, good discussion uh,